Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Today, we're going to continue to look in Mark at the real Jesus, and uh, we get to look at a really interesting passage today uh, that is uh, one that I think we will look at and decide as we look at it that it's not just what it appears on the surface, it's much more than that. Um, so if you will join me in Mark 10, beginning in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false, t- false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he said, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is. For the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at these words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus' disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And Peter said, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, at first glance, this text seems to be all about wealth, doesn't it? But if we treat it that way, if we look at it that way, it's a little bit like going to uh, the shoe uh, and hanging out around the shoe right before the Michigan game with all the tailgate parties and walking around saying, oh, the Buckeyes are just another team. Just one in a million. Who cares? They're no big deal. And that comment kind of totally ignores the context, doesn't it? And actually really misses the heart. And the heart of this passage is not about wealth at all. We'll spend time, a little bit of time talking about wealth today because that's the way Jesus addresses this issue. And we'll maybe even apply a little bit on wealth. But the heart of the passage is not about wealth at all. It's actually about grace. And the amazingly beautiful outcomes God wants in our lives when we receive His grace. Now we're going to look at the passage this way. We're going to look at it in three parts. We're going to look at understanding the question. We're going to look at understanding the confrontation that Jesus makes. And then we're going to look at, finally, at understanding the outcomes God wants us to enjoy when we learn to receive the grace that he offers us. First, understand the question. So the rich young ruler, who is this guy? He comes to Jesus, and uh, he is the guy that everybody wants to be like. He's capable, he's smart, he's wealthy, he's a ruler, he's got the power, he's young, he's got everything that we would admire. And he comes to Jesus and asks the question, what must I do 
to inherit eternal life. Now, we could easily misunderstand that because uh, we don't get what he's being said here. Eternal life, the word eternal is actually our way of trying to translate their word that says just the next age. And if you understand the Jewish mindset of the time, eternal life for them had the context that we have, life after death. But it also had an additional context added to that. And that was this. They believed that when the Messiah came or when a righteous ruler of Israel would come and set everything right, that they would be in the next age and receive eternal benefits here as well. So this guy coming from a Jewish mindset is not just talking about what's going to happen after I'm dead... He's actually asking the question, how can I be part of God's good plan now when God moves here in history through the Messiah as well as for eternity as we would normally think about it? So put even more practically, we might ask this question today by saying this, how can life, how can my life have eternal meaning? Or we might ask it this way, how can I get in How can I be good enough? How can I be included by God in being blessed in what he wants to bring in this life? Or another way, how can I be sure that my future is secure? That's really the question being asked today and being addressed by Jesus. Second, understanding the confrontation. So here's this guy everybody wants to be like. Everybody wants to be on his team. He's smart, capable, everything we'd ever hoped for. And yet... Even with all of that going for him, he still comes to Jesus and asks the question of security. Even with everything that he's got going for him, he's going, I am not sure I'm good enough for God. I'm not sure I'm good enough for God to bless me. I'm not sure I'll be able to be a part of the good things he wants to do in the future. I'm not sure I'm going to go to heaven. He comes to Jesus and he addresses Jesus with the utmost social respect, telling, kneeling before him and saying, good teacher. And Jesus comes back to him and actually makes a veiled reference to the fact that he's God, saying, only God is good. Why do you call me good? And then Jesus uh, moves on and starts to answer his question or seemingly answer his question. At least it's kind of a setup to make him think. And he answers it by actually starting to list for him the second half of the Ten Commandments plus one. So maybe Jesus had an eleventh. I don't know. Those are, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and then he adds one, do not defraud. And the man answers him and says, teacher, and it's not just an answer, he declared it. He's confident. He says, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And then it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. The man shows Jesus just this formal respect. He shows Jesus this life demonstrated with that demonstrates a solid motivation in all of life in, a, in his pursuit of God and his pursuit of faith. There's a solid motivation and a solid follow through to do what is right and good. And Jesus loved this man. And yet Jesus goes on and confronts him and says, "This one thing you lack." Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. And this is interesting because nowhere else in the Bible, nowhere else in the Bible is there a command from God to us to sell everything we have and give it to the poor. 
In fact, if you honestly look at the Bible, the Bible actually affirms the fact that there is great value placed upon in God's economy towards us having enough, towards us in the material world, towards wealth even. If you look at the Old Testament characters, almost all of the greats of the Old Testament were very wealthy men. They were. They were some of the wealthiest people around. Now, the Bible doesn't guarantee that we're all going to be wealthy. By no stretch of the imagination does it guarantee that. But I can say that if we followed uh, the biblical teaching on finances, and if we followed the Bible more in terms of surrendering our lives and our motivations to Him, we would all be a whole lot more wealthy than than we are right now. It doesn't guarantee it. But the Bible, the Christian worldview, does value the material world in a way that no other religion does. If you look at some of the other major religions, Eastern religions, Buddhism and Hinduism, they treat the material world as an illusion that's, that's going to someday go away. It won't be here and we'll go into this other world, nirvana that, or whatever they call it, that's going to be different. The Roman and Greek Hellenistic worldview treats the creation as bad and the spirit as good. And sometimes, frankly, that affects us in our Christian theology. And it shouldn't because we end up believing that the spirit is good and Everything else is bad and we lose a, we disconnect from the world around us in some ways that we shouldn't. But only the Bible, in only the Bible, is there a God who makes the world on purpose, saying repeatedly about all of creation that it is good. It's very good. See, the Bible's position on material things and wealth is that material pleasures are good and we're supposed to be able to enjoy them. And if you even go further than that and look at the Bible's intention for us as humans, you look back at the, uh, at the creation in the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, and what does God say to them that they're supposed to be? They're supposed to be what? They're supposed to be stewards. They're supposed to basically be gardeners to enjoy this beautiful creation He's given them. But what, do, what does a gardener do? Maybe an easier way for us, if we're, since many of us don't garden, would be to say this. If you had a million dollars and you gave it to a Brinks security guy, what's your expectation? Isn't your expectation that they're going to they're gonna keep it, keep it safe and give it back to you, right? But if you give a million dollars to a broker, what's your expectation? Isn't your expectation that they're going to produce something, they're going to grow something, there's going to be good, there's going to be prosperity, there's going to be wealth with it? When God says he wants us to be stewards or gardeners, he's giving us all of this and he's saying, it's good, I want you to produce something beautiful and good and enjoy it. To take natural things around us, that's the essence of God. what God wants us to do. And yet the rich young ruler, for some reason, idolized what was produced rather than worshiping the one who gave him the ability to produce it because he comes to Jesus trying to earn his salvation. What must I do? How often do we do the same thing? How often do we take ownership for what God gives us to broker instead of worshiping him and allowing us to just simply work with Him. The Bible even goes further in affirming this value of, of wealth and material. Think about the pictures that the Bible talks about in terms of the end of the age, the new earth, the new heaven that comes. It's all pictures of abundant wealth and beauty, amazingly abundant wealth and beauty, beyond all that we can imagine. And I have a feeling that in that time that God's still going to say to us, I want you to be the gardener. 
I want you to be the one that enjoys tending this. I want you to be the one that enjoys producing beautiful things. I have a feeling that when we all get to that point and get to heaven, there's still going to be musicians and there's still going to be artists creating beautiful things. There's still going to be gardeners and farmers growing wonderful things. There's still going to be scientists and physicists creating and making wonderful things. There's still going to be teachers teaching. There's probably even going to be personal trainers because the food's going to be good and we're going to eat too much. Right? So we've got to do a few more squats. One thing there won't be. There won't be ministers. There won't be counselors. There won't be social workers. We're all going to get fired by God. Because everyone will have a relationship with God. Everyone will know God and need no explanation because God will guide them. And we'll all have that kind of a relationship. God takes pleasure in what he has created. And he wants us to enjoy making something beautiful of it. God's not against wealth. He is, however, against us becoming the owners instead of the brokers instead of the stewards, instead of the gardeners. Because he's the owner. So why does Jesus make wealth the focus of confrontation in this instance? Well, in that day, wealth was a sign of godliness. And hasn't it been throughout most of history? And we all talk and complain about the evil having wealth, but in general, don't we all think that we'll be blessed if we do what's right? If we, if we, if we live with God rightly, then we'll, we should be blessed above all else and we should be wealthy. Isn't that what we've thought throughout all history? And that's very common what they thought then as well. And consider further the rich young ruler and how capable and socially adept he was and how amazing he was. And, and I think this is part of the reason that Jesus loved him because he was so capable. He was so intense. He was such a good performer of what was good and right. And sometimes you've heard us talk a lot about how religion is so based in us performing. But it's not so much the performance behaviors that we do that are the issue. Because the Bible applauds people who have a great work ethic. The Bible applauds, loves people who have great focus on doing right and doing good and creating wealth. And the Bible teaches us to be attentive to all these things. But Jesus zeroes in on the one thing. It's the issue of the heart. And when we look at how Jesus zeroes in on it, many scholars actually look at this passage and they say Jesus, they think Jesus intentionally left out the first four commandments and the last commandment when he was, when he was kind of prepping this guy saying, you know, have you done all these things? And he says, yes, I've kept them all from my birth. They think Jesus actually left them off because when he goes to tell them, go sell all and give it away, the contention isn't it, it fits that Jesus is practically challenging him on all the commandments that he did not mention. The commandment, like the first commandment, there's only one God and him only shall you worship. The second commandment, don't have any idols. Nothing in life should be more important than me. Absolutely nothing, no thing, nobody, no thought, no ideal should be greater than me. And don't use the Lord's name in vain, the third one. The Sabbath and not coveting were the ones he left out when he talked to him before. You see, the rich young ruler is trying to earn his way to heaven. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And for him, wrapped up in his wealth somewhere, is an idol. We don't know exactly what the focus of that idol was. It could have been uh, his identity and being wealthy and rich and people come. It could have been a sense of an idol of self-sufficiency. 
It could have been an idol of, of coveting what other people had and competitiveness and wanting more than everybody else had. It could have been just a, a driven greed to prove his worth. We don't know exactly what the focus of the ideal was, idol was, but there's an idea in his heart that's attached to money itself that was a functional savior to him, not God. And God is so serious about dealing with the idols in our lives because they prevent us from receiving his grace. An idol can be, even in this instance, things that seem good. Think about what Jesus is asking him. I mean, this guy has done great things, right? He's performed great. He's considered good by everybody around him. He's been generous. He hasn't broken the commandments. He's accumulated great wealth. He's a great ruler, using it for good. He's got all these wonderful things stacked up over here. And Jesus is saying, I don't want you to just take your sin. I want you to take all the good things that you have put around your identity, all the wonderful things you've produced, I want you to stack them up over here and I want you to look at me and I want you to say, I'm better. I'm better than all of that. To choose Jesus' goodness and to trust him. You see, Paul himself does this. We see later, Paul, this man who was a Harvard-educated guy, top of his class, the, the rising star in, in, in Israel and even outside of Israel in terms of his education and training, a political affluence growing like crazy. And he comes to Christ and later says this. He says, I consider all that gain, all those good things, all that performance I did, all the moral things I did so well, I consider all that gain as loss, as rubbish, compared to knowing Christ, my Lord. You see, God is so serious about idols that stand in the way of his good grace toward us that he's willing to take off the gloves and confront us in areas of our lives. And even when it hurts, even when it scares us because of the fear of lack of control or whatever it is, This compassionate God is still willing to do it because His grace is better and that idol stands in the way. Have you ever noticed that uh, the more wealthy you are or the, when you're around people who are wealthier that there's, they tend to be a whole lot more confident and they tend to fall prey more easily to the trap of we can do it ourselves? the more educated, the more wealthy, whatever. We always fall prey to the trap that we can do it ourselves. We can figure it out out ourselves. After all, we didn't get to that point, did we, by not being good at performing, not good at working, not good at following through. And even if somebody inherits wealth, they don't earn it themselves, there's still oftentimes so much pressure, isn't there? This last week I was a part of a, a group at the New Albany schools of community leaders and pastors and educators and, and social workers and counselors in the community trying to begin to address maybe a little bit more this issue that, you know, if you're familiar, New Albany school has had a couple suicides and some stuff this last, this last year. So they're, they're talking about how do we change the culture, the community, and what is the culture that needs to be changed. And without a doubt, regardless of the belief system of the people in the room, the one thing that came across is we live in a culture that whether they have wealth or not, the influence of wealth puts so much pressure on our kids to perform, to be in everything, to constantly be busy, to perform. 
The pressure of success and wealth leads to reinforcing our human natural tendency to want to save ourselves rather than receive God's grace, to trust our own goodness rather than God's grace, to not surrender all and instead to choose to earn our way or pay back what's given to us in grace. And Jesus' confrontation of the rich young ruler isn't about money. It's a confrontation to lead him to grace. And Jesus is so adept at doing that for all of us that whether it's money, whether it's family, whether it's anything else you can name, he doesn't want anything to stand in the way of us receiving his good grace. I mean, look at the Bible. He does it with Abraham. Abraham is one of the wealthiest guys in the world at his time, in his time period. Just a, a tremendously wealthy person. Wealthier than most of the kings around him. And he doesn't confront him on his wealth, does he? He blesses him and provides great wealth for him. And bless, but, but he asks for what? Isaac, right? He says, would you surrender Isaac to me? Would you surrender your family, your, your heritage that you're going to leave behind? Whatever meaning is attached to that. And, and when he does, he stops him from sacrificing and saying, now I've got your whole heart. What did Jesus focus on when talking with the woman at the well? It wasn't about money, was it? There was some sort of an idol in her heart about the need to be needed or the need to be needed by a man or, or, or sex or something that had caused her to have five failed marriages and be living with another man whom she wasn't married to. And Jesus confronts that idol in order for what? His grace and his goodness to come to her. And the rich young ruler's idol was somehow attached to money. And if we really deal with it honestly in our own lives, money is one of the hardest things that can so easily become an idol to all of us in some form or fashion, something attached to that. And I think that's the reason the Bible talks about wealth more than any other subject almost in the Bible. The text says the man walked away sad. And that sad should have about a dozen exclamation points behind it because the word is really more one of just exasperated, just grievous despondency that he walks away from this situation with. And then Jesus goes on to say, uh, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed, again, because their worldview was, what do you mean, Jesus, the rich are being blessed by God? What do you mean it's hard for them to enter the kingdom? And Jesus does like he so often does, you know, you think he, he confronts us really hard, and then he, and then he just kind of sticks it in a little further. I don't know why he does that, but he goes on and says, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there have been a lot of fancy sermons on this that try to talk about this and say this is really not the eye of a, of a little needle, that there's, there's this supposedly this small door that it can be inside of a big gate in the city, and it's small enough that at night the camel has to unload, get down on his knees to go through. You've heard that, some of you have heard that message. If you really look at that historically, there's really very, very little, if any, real historical evidence for that. And besides the fact that it really doesn't make any difference in the message anyway, because the whole point is that this is something that's impossible. Jesus is basically saying, this is something like, uh, I want you to capture the whole ocean and put it in a bottle. And the whole point is to make this impossible. So I find it funny that people try to make a sermon about how we could make this possible. And the disciples understand that. They say, who then can be saved? I mean, think about it for them. 
Not only is their worldview being shaken about wealth and blessing and, and godliness being equated, but Jesus basically just said to them, let's just use a different example. Jesus basically saying to them, in order to be saved, you have to be really fast. And they say, well, how fast? And he says, you've got to be twice as fast as Usain Bolt. Who then can be saved? No one. And then Jesus gives hope. With man, it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Why is it that grace is so hard for us to receive? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus is offering this man grace. Why is it so hard to receive? Maybe part of it is because every ounce of us demands to stay in control. We just have such a hard time not being in control. Everything demands that. And yet Jesus is saying it's impossible for you to save yourselves. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. There's nothing I have not given you to bring you success. There's nothing you can do. And the other part is that grace confronts our idols that we hold on to most. It confronts our security. It, it, it confronts the things that we identify with ourselves with. We, we are successful. We are smart. We're intelligent. We're capable. We're hardworking. Whatever it is. It confronts those things that sometimes get in the way of His Lordship in our life. Where does your sense of security come from? To what do you say, I'll be okay if? You see, what Jesus is doing in this, in this interaction with the rich and the little, and what the whole point of today is about is what's in that blank. What's in that I'll be okay if? I have enough money. I'll be okay if I'm employed in a meaningful way. I'll have, be okay if my family's... I don't know what it is. You know, grace confronts the idols that form our identity outside of God. And the tra those idols trap us. They trap us in self-justifying behavior. and We get angry because we don't like being told we're not good enough. We don't like being told we can't control anything. We don't like it, especially especially when we're successful because we think we're the smart ones. We're the ones who are willing to pay the price. We're the ones who worked hard for the graduate degree. We're the ones who paid the price with extra hours. We're the ones who, you know, our, our idols are attached so much to our identity that they define who we are. We're good. We're successful. We're wealthy. We're better than others. And really the message Jesus is giving us today, in a sense, is that we're all embezzlers. We take what God has given us, our mind, our education, our opportunities, our money, our memory, our intuition, our looks, our work ethic, our family, our, our community, our nation, whatever we take, and we say it's mine. I've done this. And we build our identity around those things. When that's challenged, we get angry. We get angry when, a, when money is challenged, and if that's an idol... We get angry when somebody talks about it. We get angry if somebody talks differently about sex or entertainment or how we spend our time or, uh, and we don't like it when somebody challenges it. If somebody challenges our position at work or our volunteer opportunity and that's really an idol, it's, that we don't trust God for that, that it's really something that is part of our identity, we get angry when it's challenged and that opportunity is taken from us. 
You see, when our identity is not fully in God but in anything else, that anything else is an idol. And that idol prevents us from surrendering and truly resting in the loving grace and salvation of God. Jesus loved this man. And this man couldn't receive his grace. Now, how do you recognize the power of of anything, not just money, becoming idolatrous in your life, taking the place of God? Just because it's easier with this, this message, let's just continue with the idea of money because that's what Jesus was confronting and that was where the idol was attached with this young ruler. And, and when we think of idolatry with money, we almost have to use the word greed. Greed is another word for idolatry. But isn't that hard to figure out when you're greedy? Because no matter how much you have or how little you have, there's always somebody who has a little bit more. If, if you have a ton, there's always somebody who has bigger, better, more, spends more and nicer things and whatever. There's always somebody with more. So it's, it's always this frog in the kettle type of thing where we, it's that person who's greedy, we're not. It's that person who buys this that's greedy and we're not. And there's no idol there. But idolatry has... Really, and especially in money, idolatry has little to do with how much money we have or don't have. We can look at it and maybe, maybe these are some helpful ideas. We could know that wealth is an idol when one reason for staying in your job, in an unfulfilling job, is just simply because of the money. And you say, where else can I make this kind of money? Because if that's true, then there's no other bottom line than profit for you. There's no sense of God's calling. There's no sense of God's purpose and His mission for you engaged in those relationships. We could know that money is probably an idol if we make an average or above average income and we're still unable to give 10% of our money to God's work simply because the other things we're spending our money on are more important. Or we've coveted things in the past and we've got ourselves too in debt and we live beyond our means because we covet things we can't afford and then we can't give. If the dollars aren't idle, it will drive you to overwork. You'll constantly be working and you'll never have any kind of Sabbath practice in your life. And if, if anything, whether it's money or anything else is an idol, you'll, you'll be in a sense uh, bipolar. Now, you know, probably know what bipolar is, but let's just talk about it. Bipolar people go through this, uh, these stages where there's, when something goes well, or like if we're talking about money, if you make a sale or, 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 or are doing really good, you have this irrational exuberance, and you almost get this overconfidence about the fact we're doing so well. And, and you've seen it in some business people. You've watched them get this irrational overconfidence and then make bad decisions. That's what happens when we are bipolar on the upswing. But when we face loss of money or you feel like you're, you feel like you're a failure, when you, when you lose social status, if we're talking about money, you, you lose your sense of identity and you have this irrational low as well in life. Anything that's an idol is a harsh taskmaster. And Jesus wants to free us from those things so we can enjoy life. And when it comes to money, he wants to free us from them so we can even enjoy the wealth of money and not be controlled by it in any way. Because he wants wealth and experience of it to be part of our goodness in life. Finally, understanding the outcomes Jesus wants us to experience. Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. And Jesus responds, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel 
will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So what is Jesus saying here about the outcome of complete surrender to his grace? First, uh, he's reaffirming that there is a reward now. In spite of the reality of the difficulty of life, in spite of the reality of the persecution or the pains or the trials that we face in life, He wants us to have a sense of goodness and a reward even now. And it begs the question, what are the good things in our life right now that we are overlooking? And second, there's a clear sense of mission in this statement. He says, leave behind everything for me and the gospel. Jesus' invitation to the rich young ruler in this instance with his idol of money is not just to sell all and give to the poor and be this amazingly benevolent person. It has nothing to do with him being a benevolent person. It has everything to do with a call to the mission of the gospel. That his, in this instance, his wealth, his time, his talent, his focus, when surrendered to the grace of God, would become a testimony to many others about the power of God's goodness and grace. Surrendering to his loving grace brings blessing in our homes, the text says. Surrendering to his loving grace brings blessing into our families, the text says. Surrender to his loving grace brings blessing into our fields, or you could equate that to our work, our business, when God is Lord there as well. And Jesus uses the same phraseology about blessing in the homes and everything, everywhere else in our life. And he uses it specifically here and, and elsewhere even more specifically that the gospel will turn many people into followers of Jesus who will be friends and they will become like family. And their homes will almost be like our homes because of the impact of the gospel and the relationship and the depth of relationships that come because of it. Accepting His grace through absolute surrender frees us to be part of bringing great good and great good news into the life of all around us. Isn't that something we all long to be a part of? Isn't that the, really the essence of what we want in life? And yet when God makes demands of us like this to surrender all, we so often respond and say, He's expecting so much. But we expect this in our relationships, don't we? How many of you have watched Ocean's Eleven? Okay, anybody who hasn't watched, I'm gonna, spoiler alert, I'm going to spoil the whole thing for you right now, okay? So Ocean's Eleven is a story about Danny Ocean played by uh, George Clooney, right? And he has, he's a con man. He has all of his group of con men, like 12 or 15 on my camera, remember how many. And they have this huge, elaborate scheme to take hundreds of millions of dollars from this, what? Eleven, sorry. So 12 has 12 and 13 has 13. I'm so slow, aren't I? Isn't that great? Anyway, he has all this, he has all this elaborate plan. That's right. That's, okay, sorry. Titles do make a difference, don't they? So he's trying to con this guy. He's a casino owner played by Andy Garcia and take hundreds of millions of dollars from her. And what is Clooney, why is he doing this? What's his purpose? Is it the money? You actually get to see the purpose at the end of the movie. How many remember this? At the end of the movie, uh, they've gotten away with all the money. And Andy Garcia, playing the casino owner, believes that Clooney's character is behind it, but he can't prove it. And Clooney and Garcia are sitting there having a conversation in his hotel, which is wired with cameras and microphones everywhere. And, and the real reason is actually tests, right? 
Tess used to be Clooney's girlfriend, but now he's the casino owner's girlfriend. And Clooney asks Garcia this question. He says, if you could have the money back, would you trade Tess for it? And he says, yes. And you know Julie Roberts, who plays Tess, sees that answer. How many of you remember Julie Roberts coming out of the elevator, dissing this guy, talking about the fact that you should know your whole, can- your whole casino has cameras in, right? And how Were you cheering when she did that and dissing him? None of us here want to hear from our spouse. Honey, you're my solid number two behind my money, right? We don't see any Hallmark cards out there or Hallmark commercials saying, I love you almost as much as my gold. Why do we think God would want anything less in his love relationship with us? You know, the rich young ruler is a guy that everyone wants to be like him. He's been successful. He's been wealthy. He's well-respected. He's got the power. He's got the influence. And we all want to be like that. And when we construct the identity and the ideal of what we want to be, there is so much pressure behind it for most of us. We're striving for those ideals. We're trying to earn it. We're trying to work hard. We're trying to get there, right? And so often that our ideals and our, our ideas of what success is and what we want to be, the people we set up, force us to just work hard and earn everything. We transfer that so easily to our faith and salvation, just trying to earn it. Jesus is confronting us with our idols, is really offering us his grace that says, let me carry your burden. Stop trying to carry the pressure yourself. Stop trying to prove yourself. I love you. I'm offering you grace. I have an amazing good plan that that includes great blessing. My outcome is actually what you are desiring. And it's exactly, when he describes this outcome, this is exactly what the rich young ruler wanted. And Jesus is saying to us, instead of trying to stack up your merits over here and all the good things you've earned and all the good things you've done and making sure you're good enough over here and making your identity over here, surrender it all to my grace. And let me love you. Choose me. I'm better. Trust me. Let me take the proper place as the owner and you just be the good gardener, the good steward of what I've given. You know, we can so easily deceive ourselves like the rich young ruler in our success to think that we can do it just following the right rules, being good enough as a leader, being good enough as a husband, being good enough as a wife, being good enough that we can be a good enough parent. And God is asking you to receive His grace and let go of the pressure of earning that security or that significance or that peace through your idol to surrender it. What are the idols that stand in your way today of receiving the grace of God? The invitation is don't be like the don't be like the rich young ruler who walked away saddened and exasperated, but to choose God and surrender it. I want to invite you as the as the music uh, starts in just a moment and as the song starts in just a moment because we've got two more worship songs to to take the time to just think about that. What are the things in my life that when they're confronted I get angry? When I hear a, a preacher speak about them, I get 
angry or when I hear my spouse or somebody else, I get angry because maybe there's an idol behind it. What are the areas where you constantly take on pressure and stress? Questioning yourself, am I ever going to be good enough? There's an idol that you're carrying behind that. And as the song plays and as you, as you think about it, I want you to pray a prayer something like this. This is just simply says, Jesus, I know I treasure blank more than you. Help me to want you more. And when it feels impossible, help me to trust you that you say all things are possible and that you can give me a new heart. And then during the worship set, uh, just when, you, when you've done that, when you've prayed that, when you're ready, just come and receive communion and then just worship your heart out. Just praise God and just let the joy of His grace come and touch you. Would you do that? Let's go ahead and do that now. I don't think it's any chance that the Ten Commandments start out with a phrase, there's only one God and worship Him only. Because it really is honestly our only response we can do. We can't take control. You can't walk out of here and say, I'm going to leave this idol behind. That's the reason we talked about last week that repentance is really turning from an idol to the worship of God. And so whether you can sing or not, whether you enjoy this kind of music or not, I want to encourage you now and this week to just spend extra time worshiping God, declaring His goodness, declaring His power, declaring how great He is. Because that's what brings freedom and that's where His presence comes. And that's what we're after. Go ahead and worship and when we're done, if you have uh, things you would like to be prayed for, just come down, grab somebody. Uh, we'd, love to, we'd love to pray for you. But let's just go this week and let's enjoy the goodness of God in worship. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.